was wrestling with that age-old source of angst that all of us are confronted with at some point in our faith journey, the problem of evil, as it's traditionally called. And in particular, Koheleth was struggling with the problem of evil in reference to inequity in the midst of humanity, injustice and oppression in a world where supposedly a good God who loves all is ruling equally. Verse 1, again, you guys can follow along in your Bibles. Again, verse 1, I looked and saw, he says, all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. So justice and injustice, oppression and deliverance, the powerful and the weak, how we as humans are to treat one another, these ideas weave a thematic thread through the entirety of the biblical narrative. And when we trace that thread from the beginning to the end, what becomes extremely clear is that God intends dignity and value and equality amongst every human on this planet. And even more clearly, God intends his people to create, to bring about, to birth that equality through costly, self-giving acts of love for the most vulnerable, from those that we consider different, even dangerous. Jesus saying, love your enemy. Kohelet, he was saturated in these themes as a Hebrew wisdom teacher. But what we see is that in his observations, he conspicuously fails to mention that there are multitudes of passages. In fact, the entirety of the Bible is replete with the assurance that God sees the oppressed and God is warring for them and God will one day deliver them. Nor does Koheleth call the prophets, call God's people from the prophets to do justice by lifting up the press down. And so even though this man who was rich, wealthy, and wise had the power and the means to help the helpless, instead we see that he only observes the tears of the oppressed. And as he observed, through his deconstruction, he developed a bitter and hopeless lens, relegating human existence to a mechanistic universe where there is no help for anyone. Now, Koheleth was bothered by it all, but he wasn't bothered enough to do something about it, something that would cost him his power, his position, his wealth. So even though Koheleth was hundreds of years before the Darwinian and the scientific revolutions in which we find ourselves, Koheleth saw his world in the exact same way that late Western modernity sees its world. His deconstruction had truncated, reduced God into an absentee father at best or a cruel puppet master at worst. And so rather than life being a gift of infinite value given from an involved and a personal God, Koheleth said, look, if we're just super smart monkeys, if we're nothing more than animals in a dog-eat-dog situation, then death and non-existence are probably better. Verse 2 in your Bibles, Koheleth declared that the dead who are already dead are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And then suddenly, Koheleth makes what at first blush seems like a very unconnected and unnecessary category shift where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. Verse 4, And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. This feels to me like such a strange and strained leap. 
How do you go from the tears of the oppressed to everything everyone does is because of envy? Now, if we reflect on it as we're about to for the next 20 minutes, Koheleth is actually getting to the roots of injustice and oppression. And at the root of it is envy, jealousy. Christian thinkers have long considered envy to be oppressive and deadly to the one envying and to those that we envy. In the fourth century, Evagrius Ponticus, excuse me, he defined eight evil thoughts that he saw as detrimental to the spiritual formation and the flourishing of his monastic communities. Those eight evil thoughts were gluttony, lust, avarice, anger, sloth, sadness, vainglory, and pride. Now, through the centuries, Evagrius's warnings evolved until in the sixth century, St. Gregory the Great replaced sloth with envy. And Gregory said that pride was actually the source of all seven of the most dangerous vices in the human heart, or what came to be enshrined as the seven deadly sins in church history. Today, with our carefully curated Instagram feeds and our constant comparison of our lives with others, envy is the air we breathe. But this air, dear church, it is polluted, it is toxic, it is oppressive, it's deadly. You and I, we live in the age of envy. Career envy, kitchen envy, children envy, food envy, position envy, power envy, education envy, body envy, holiday envy, you name it, there is an envy for it, and you and I have experienced it. Human beings have always felt what Aristotle defined in the fourth century as pain at the sight of another good fortune, stirred by those who have what we ought to have. Today, we moderns experience really a two-punch knockout when it comes to envy. Convenience and constancy. (laughs) Our unparalleled wealth, friends, and our comfort, it has afforded us what I just call the convenience of comparison. Most human societies prior to ours did not have the ability or the opportunity or the time to compare with each other to the degree that we do. You were born into the position you were born into, and there was no changing it. They were just trying to survive. Our wealth and our comfort has created this convenience whereby we can compare ourselves continually. This convenience accompanied by the technology that we have developed has led to constant exposure. So we can sit and scroll endlessly through a never-ending barrage of comparison, and that is what we do day in, day out. And it's ruining the neurochemistry of our brains. I'm telling you, 20 years from now, science is going to show that this was worse than smoking what we're doing to ourselves. Now let's talk about where envy comes from. Let's get to our hearts. Envy is rooted in insecurity. Envy is rooted in a deformed sense of who we truly are. So instead of living as loved image bearers, which is what we are biblically speaking, instead of living in God's abundance, which he provides for all, we are deceived. And we believe the lie that we need more. We must be bigger. We must be faster, more beautiful, more famous, more powerful. Because did God really say Did God really say the serpent came and said to Adam and Eva, Adam and Eve? Did God really say, he says to you as you scroll endlessly through the barrage of comparison, did God really say when we envy, we'll die? Church, we have to understand in the modern age of envy how oppressive and deadly this envy is in our hearts. 
that stab of pain or that moment of brief anger or that sensation of diminishment and failure that we feel in our body when they get the promotion, the honor, the gig, the house, the spouse, the the be that whatever it may be, that feeling, that moment in our body is our flesh sinful, Satan who hates us, and the world crushing us, oppressing our truest self. Biblically speaking, our truest self is the unconditionally loved, immeasurably valuable, unbelievably beautiful, highly esteemed, forever applauded, image-bearing child of God. Envy crushes that. Envy attacks and exacerbates our shame. Envy works in this world of shame in the human heart, which we all struggle with and wrestle with. Shame, I love this imagery, is the sense that we're on the side, we as individuals are on the side of a chasm. We're there by ourselves. And everyone else who is beautiful and smart and successful and famous and rich and powerful, they all figured out how to get onto the other side of the chasm. And we cannot get there and we never will get there because we are inherently ugly. We are inherently dumb, obscure, poor, weak. What we are, shame says, is we are wrong. Shame distorts. And shame destroys the image of God within us. And envy is what we experience as our limbic and central nervous systems embody the lie. Those stabs of pain and desperation and anger and hurt are the embodiment of the lie of envy. And so when shame defines who we are, we become the walking dead. Not animated by the spirit, ruach, life, joy, peace, patience, kindness, abundance. We become the walkie dead, animated by envy, competitive, comparing all the time. Always looking across the chasm, unable to rest and unable to get there. And this is where things get even a little more serious in a biblical theology of envy. Envy also motivates the oppression of others, sometimes in the most extreme degree. To envy is to murder. Cain killed his brother Abel out of envy, the first murder in the Bible. King Saul raged and threw spears at young David out of envy. The Jewish elite, driven by envy of Jesus' popularity and influence, turned him over to be crucified. Envy always has to oppress. Envy always has to press down the other. And if unchecked, envy eventually presses down the other by whatever means necessary, be that small talk, judgmentalism, beatings, invasion, and use of deadly force. And so envy oppresses our soul because of shame, and envy puts us on the path to oppressing the ones that we envy. When we wish we were like them, have what they have, do what they do, we kill who we are, destroy what we have, and deny what we do. When we compensate for that stab of pain in our bodies by degrading and judging and diminishing the human in front of us, if only with our words or thoughts so innocent, did God really say we'll die? We are doing what murderers do. We are destroying fellow image bearers. Very serious. And so as we observe the tears of the oppressed in our world, Koheleth forces you and I to face our hearts and to discern the oppression, and the death that our own personal envy brings about in the world around us. But friends, thank God these sermons turn a corner. (laughs) 
Hope is hidden right here in Koheleth's thoughts. Right in plain sight are hope for you and I in the wounds of envy and hope of a world war-torn by comparison and jealousy. Four sources to take us to communion this morning. Four sources of healing that will bring equality into the world. Four sources of healing that will bring equality to the world. See and escape. Learn contentment. Press into community. Look to the kingdom. See and escape. Learn contentment, press into community, look to the kingdom. Let's start with seeing and escaping. Seeing our sin for what it is and how it drives us is the first step to being able to escape our enslavement to it. Paul was very clear in Romans 5 through 6 that those who sin are enslaved to it, bound to it, beaten down by it, an evil and wicked taskmaster. Koheleth, he saw sin, and a particular sin he saw was envy under the surface of every human behavior, be that bad talk or invasion and deadly force. When he says that he saw, this was more than just a cursory glance. Through a, it was through a rigorous introspection and a deeply honest, terrifying assessment of his own heart. Koheleth dug deep, and he uncovered the core issues of his behavior. And that, friends, is where the human begins to find true liberating freedom. It is to dig deep and discover sin in our own hearts because only then can we own it and repent and escape its enslavement. In therapeutic terms, until we give something a title, it controls us until we name it. And so we have to see it. And it's really good for us to see it and use old Bible language when we see it. That's envy. That's deadly. That's killing me and killing others. But what does repentance concretely look like for you and I tomorrow morning? Repentance has to be more than some vague, abstract, intellectual idea. I'm sorry, Father, that I envy. It has to be an embodied turning from what is killing us. How do we do that? We need a new exodus, a new exodus. I am more persuaded of this than ever. I'm about to get on a soapbox and rant for a little while, so bear with me, because I love you. A new exodus. Modern Christians, you need a new exodus to come out from under the oppressive pharaohs and the empire of technology and algorithms, friends, that have intentionally hijacked and addicted our dopamine systems to monetize our pain. And this new exodus comes through two ancient practices. For those of you that have been in neighbors, please don't roll your eyes. I know we talk about this every Sunday. Silence and solitude. And we will talk about it every Sunday until you actually do it. Silence and solitude. Silence and solitude. I plead with you. Friends, we are on the cusp of renewal. We're seeing spots, breakouts, little movements, points, glimmering, shining points of hope and joy. This generation, Gen Z in particular, is being given an opportunity like no other generation for a fourth great awakening in Western society. Silence and solitude are not just trendy ideas that we're to chat about at group this week. They're not just to be read about in some book and then ignored. These ancient practices in the way of Jesus are more critical for your and my and the world's well-being than ever before because it is these embodied points of repentance that restore our soul unto the good shepherd. Quote just from this morning in my meditations, Thomas Merton said, all men, all humans need enough silence and solitude in their lives to enable the deep inner voice of their own true self to be heard at least occasionally. 
Silence and solitude delivers us from the control of comparison. How? By taking us intentionally into digital deserts where we can find our truest lives again as image bearers. In silence and solitude, there are no chasms to cross. There are no crowds to look at. There's just us in all of our anxiety and wounds and shame and pain and uncertainty and a most gentle and a most quiet, quiet, quiet God. His voice, an inaudible whisper of love and kindness and mercy. Silence and solitude. These are specific set-apart times, extended times, preferably, where phones are literally left at home. No distraction is taken. No comparison takes place. And there, in these deserts of a modern exodus, God slowly and supernaturally, Thomas Keating called it psycho-spiritual therapy, slowly and supernaturally reacquaints us with who we are as loved, image-bearing children. Like addicts, though, I come from a massively addictive background. Like addicts, we cannot toy with our substance abuse. We have to recognize, as they say in AA, that our lives have become unmanageable and we are powerless. Please, this is not managing your life to be this way all day long at dinner, at work, every single break. Your life is being destroyed by this. It's no longer manageable. And we have to confess, I am powerless. As an addict with a long addictive background, I finally recognized a few years ago with the technology stuff, my brain just is OCD and loves, and I had to escape completely. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm telling you not to toy with these addictions because we are slaves of envy and comparison. You know what slaves do when they can escape tr cruel taskmasters? They don't sneak back to the taskmaster and say, maybe I could negotiate a little extra time with you and it would, be go, it would go better. You'd treat me better. Slaves flee cruel taskmasters. And so in this new exodus, through silence and solitude, we, invent, we intentionally are going after God alone in the wilderness to find ourselves again. And of course, this is terrifying. Of course, this isn't easy. You need to, minimal dosage for maximal application. Start with a couple hours of no phone. Start with a couple hours of silence and solitude out at sunset cliffs, just being there with your Bible and your drink and water, but build up over time, extended times, and it never gets easy. I told you guys that I just returned a couple months ago from a five-day silent retreat where I took nothing but one recreational book, my Bible, and some water, and I was in this dome out in the middle of the desert out in East County, super weird place, and for five days, you would think it would just be like so resting and relaxing. And I'm telling you, it was violent. It was violent. Felt like a desert monk out there wrestling with the devil himself. And the devil was me. I had to just sit out there with me. And on the last day, finally, I wish it would have been an epiphany. It was more like a fog clearing where I began to see, I'm so loved. I'm so, I'm so loved. And this new exodus that the church is being called to, it leads to the healing and the oppression of the world. The goal of the silence and solitude is to experience ourselves as loved by God, to love God, but ultimately to come back and love others. Because people who are secure in their loved identities, they love others well. Silence and solitude actually forms the container in which a loved identity, apart from anyone else, is formed. Because there, our Father is able to speak into us supernaturally by his Spirit in the Scriptures, our truest identity, so that when we re-enter the violent wars of a culture of comparison, we are liberated from it to rescue those trapped in it. 
see and escape, a new exodus, silence and solitude. And as we re-enter society from our digital deserts, we must learn contentment. Wealthy, wise, wind up, modern Westerns. That's all of us. We must learn contentment. Koheleth coins his own proverb here to describe the two ways that those who are trapped in a culture of comparison react. Fools, verse 5, fools fold their hands, excuse me, verses 5 and 6, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Two reactions to the warfare of comparison in our culture. Some just quit. They just quit. And then like fools, they fold their hands and they resign themselves to no work, to laziness. The Hebrew here literally says, left to eat their own flesh. Bit graphic for the English translators. Others, literally translated in the Hebrew, they double down and fight harder, carrying two fists of toil as they chase the wind. Resignation, laziness, left to eat your own flesh, you just give up. Or fight harder, two fists of toil as you chase the wind. And hidden right in the center of Koheleth's little proverb is this loved child of God. And this loved child of God has one hand open in praise and another hand receiving what is, not too much, not too little, not resigning and quitting, not striving and fighting, but enjoying one handful of tranquility. Doesn't that sound nice? St. Paul, whose life prior to Jesus was powerful and well-to-do, respected, at the end of his life, found himself writing from a Roman prison to a tiny little obscure house church in the Roman province of Philippi. And there from that prison, he wrote in Philippians chapter four, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And so St. Paul's former life of wealth and prestige had given way to a disgusting prison under the boot of the Roman Empire, oppression. And he who once murderously oppressed and chased Christians now called Christians to be content with lack and to be content, late modern Western Christians, San Diegan urbanites, to be content with much in abundance to learn to be content in every situation. Why? Because Jesus the Savior is with us. Jesus the Savior is for us. Jesus the Savior is enough, and our God is a God of abundance, and we're not here to war for more. We're here to give of ourselves as he gave himself for us. And note, Paul said he had to learn contentment. Christians, I think we have been sold a bill of goods by modern Christian teaching. Contentment doesn't come by some sort of supernatural transformation of our heart, and then all of a sudden we wake up one day, and it's just like everything's an easy-off disposition in the midst of Paul being in an unfair, underfed, unjust treatment. In that unfair, unfed place, he had to apply his heart. He had to apply his mind and his body and his soul to learning contentment. It was a process. And so when we re-enter society from silence and solitude, the new exodus, you and I have to double down and be intentional about what we expose ourselves to. If we're given reprieve in the deserts, then we come back to the places of warfare and we say, now I'm going to keep my eye out. I'm going to be extra careful with what I allow into my life and what I'm learning from. Learning contentment in an age of envy, it is a PhD level of schooling. 
As much energy as we expend chasing the wind with fistfuls of toil, we now expend that energy focusing on Jesus, his will, and his community. And this requires, next week we'll get into the topic of vowing and committing, things that we like have an allergic aversion to in modern society, but it requires rigorous commitment and discipline. But that single handful of tranquility, friends, I'm telling you, five days of violence in the desert and the last day to just have a handful of like, I'm so loved. I just get to carry this love back to the world. And I get to love those who have more and love those who have less. If that handful of tranquility is worth the education. And here's the healing of the world. Content people don't oppress others. Content people don't kill people. I know that sounds trite and silly. Content people don't kill people. So you see, healing for our world is hidden right here. See and escape our own sin. Learn contentment when you return from the deserts of the new exodus. And then press into community. Neighbors 101 stuff that we've been saying from the very, very beginning. Press into community. Gohelet tells here the tragic story of a man who found himself alone and miserable, driven by envy to accumulate more and more, and in so doing, he lost everything. Verses 7 through 8. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless and miserable business. There's probably nothing more oppressive to the human soul than abject loneliness. And this man that Koheleth tells of in his little parable, he had it all. We would have looked at this man's Instagram feed today and we would have said, I want his possessions, I want his vacations, I want his power. But each image would have this glaring absence, no one to share any of it with, making the pictures all utterly miserable. This man had gained the world and lost his soul. And so in another moment of conviction and clarity here, as Koheleth has those in certain little spots throughout his teachings, in a moment of conviction and clarity here, he contrasts this lonely man and his oppressed existence with the power and the joy of community. Verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And so the call is so clear. For life to have any meaning and security and fullness, it has to be deeply lived with others. And so Koheleth teaches that companionship is always better than comparison. Always. The myth is that community is there to serve us. And when community fails us, we bail. That is the problem with community in the modern Western church. When community fails us, we leave. But community has to be developed and pressed into on our part as personal agents responsible. We have to be pressed into this. And we exist in an age of radical individualism and autonomy. And we do have this allergic aversion to any sort of commitment. And so as apprentices of Jesus, practicing his way, silence and solitude, learning commitment, pressing into community, we have to recognize this is going to be difficult, awkward. It's going to be strained. It's not going to fit what I expected. It's not going to be pure and perfect. It's not going to meet all of my needs. It's going to be frustrating, sometimes overwhelming. But there is, friends, here's the call, the spiritual father's pastoral call to the children of the Lord. There is no community like Jesus' community anywhere on this planet. 
It just doesn't exist. Jesus intends us, his church, to be a community of love, and we are to be the healing agent in a world of tears and oppression. And nothing, nothing is as potent as Jesus' family. As far as I have seen, we are the only community on the planet that labors to build its relationships with each other across political perspectives, across sex and gender, across ethnicity, across education levels, across economic status, across affinity. At least, friends, that's the kingdom ideal. That's the kingdom ideal. There is no elephant in the room. There's just the obvious that we don't do that very well. We have messed that up. We have adopted the culture wars of comparison. We have built churches based on affinity, ethnicity, education, and our Father is gently with a whisper that's so loud calling us to deep, intentional, awkward, personal repentance. We have this call in our local church to press into and to be prayerful and intentional about becoming a healthy local church because healthy local churches aren't built on contractual relationships or networking principles. They're built by those who are hungering for love and, and just as equally, wanting to love unconditionally. If we want to be loved unconditionally in a community, then we must love unconditionally in a community. And so a healthy local network, or excuse me, a healthy local church, it's a network of self-giving relationships And the community is based on grace and love and the power of the Spirit and prayer. And in some measure, our community, this vibrant thing that's happening with us, it's becoming that here in the city of San Diego. Just this last week, somebody texted me in our church, we feel like we're being held together by our community and closest friends through prayer. That's a mark of health. It's a little seed that's beginning to bear fruit in the city. So now we exist as self-giving lovers of each other, We exist to invite the harassed and the harried, to escape hustle culture driven by envy and oppression, to come into a family of care and love and generosity. Always remembering, yes, we have our issues. And at the center of our issues is a crucified God who forgives us and offers new mercy every single morning. We have the help of his spirit and the truth of his scriptures if we will only press in. And at the end of all things, just consider this, friends. At the end of all things, what will matter most is not who we envied or who envied us, but who did we live life with and do life with. No one on their deathbed, and I've been in, a, I've been in so many hospital rooms, no one on their deathbed has their phone open looking for likes and longing for what others have. Nobody. I've never seen it once. You know what they want? They want real humans around them that they've shared their life with. They want people that they've loved and been loved by in the moment that they leave this life. That's what they want. That's what you and I want. And we want it now. We want it here, in this city, today, this afternoon, in the midst of communion, in our small groups. We want it now. And we must resist the lies of Pharaoh and the empire and this culture of comparison and this age of envy as apprentices of Jesus. Ultimately, the final goal of Christian community is to do what Jesus did. It's to Bring strangers in until they become friends. It's to turn our enemies into family. And it is a great privilege and an honor in this generation to do that. Finally, see and escape, learn contentment, press into community, and then live for the kingdom and we'll come to communion. Koheleth closes with this little parable, a story about political power. I don't know if you guys would agree with this, but in my opinion, political power is a context heavily polluted by envy and oppression. And he points out that all of it's just going to fail in the end. 
verses 13 through 16. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Chasing after the wind. So Koheleth's last example here highlights the futility of making it. Making it. One king comes from poverty and prison all the way to the, to the throne to usurp this arrogant and hardened older king, only to end up, after he comes from prison, not being liked by his followers. And so it goes. In totalitarian regimes, and even democratic republics like ours, succession after succession, envy and oppression, driving political powers, all to no avail. If Koheleth would have been listening to the prophets of his Hebrew passages in Torah and all of the ancient writings, if he would have been listening and letting them form his worldview, he would have seen that there was the promise of a true and coming king. And when Jesus arrived, Jesus did not jockey for power and place. He served and said that his kingdom was not of this world, therefore his servants wouldn't fight as if in this world. St. Paul, again, so helpful, admonishing the Colossian church, since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And so as we come to communion in solitude, as you make your journeys into the practice of solitude and silence, it is there that the fogs of this war the fog of war, in a, in a culture of comparison, in an age of envy, the fog slowly, slowly, and very silently dissipates. And you begin to sense, this is who I am in this world, and I have so much. As we return from silence and solitude, we begin our PhD, our education, learning contentment by carefully assessing what is forming our hearts, what is driving our behavior, learning to deeply trust in our bodies that we have riches that will never be moth-eaten or rust-destroyed. We have applause from our Father in heaven and a significance in his eyes that is beyond value, that we are loved truly as we are, and in that love we are transformed into who we truly are. In that contentment, we come and we unconditionally press into communities by deep conviction and commitment deep commitment and conviction. And these communities, vibrant little communities like Neighbors Church, dotting cities like San Diego all across the globe, we are the seedbed of the kingdom of God on earth. We are. What a privilege. What an honor. And so as the fogs clear through silence and solitude, we learn to be content. We press into community. We don't give up. We live for the kingdom now. We set our eyes on that which is beyond this world. And we think about who do I want around my deathbed? I certainly don't want my phone open. I certainly don't want to be on TikTok when I'm dying. Who do you want there? Because they're here now. Just consider that. When you're dying, who do you want there? Because they're here now. How are you living with them? Caring for them? Being with them? Watching over them? Worshiping God with them? Do you understand who we are? Do you understand what we offer this city? Feel 
know him and know him and escape this place. Father, please. My burn is greater every passing day. And even if you give me another 40 or 50 years, it's just a twinkling of an eye. There are millions of people around us. Millions of people trapped and harassed and harried sheep without a shepherd. And these saints of God are to be the pastoral and the prophetic presence. Deliver them from the oppression and the algorithms and the dopamine addictions of social media and comparison and envy. Deliver us, O oh God. And may we learn contentment to be a people of peace, non-anxious presence for the sake tomorrow of those that we work with, those that we rub shoulders with at school, those who we love and lead. And Father, when we come to die, who do we want to be with us? Because they are with us now. They're here today. Those that you want us to be around us when we pass from this life to the next, into the kingdom, until the kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, we can embody that moment tomorrow with those that we love and care for. And so bring every tribe, tongue, and nation. Bring singles and married. Bring old and young together, Lord. Break down the barriers. We repent this morning of our pockmarked and divided communion that wounds your heart and bring us to the cross of Jesus that heals us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.